2: T-I-K-A dot com. Welcome to Forward Thinking.
3: Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, what the heck does it mean to feel like a room without a roof? I'm Jonathan Strickland.
4: And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum.
3: And uh, we're going to get happy. In this episode,
4: Uh we are not only because our third co-host Joe is out on vacation. Yeah. No, no, we're upset that he's out on vacation. <laughs> well, that was mean and terrible. We're
3: upset because he's on vacation in an amazing landscape, having wonderful adventures, and we're in a podcast studio. But that's all right, Joe. We look forward to hearing about your saga when you come back.
4: Yes, he's in Iceland, by the way.
3: Yeah, that's that's the saga. Yeah. And so we're going to take the opportunity to really look at happiness as everything from a a biological function or a collection of functions to how we might try and pursue happiness in the future. And really to understand where we're coming from, I thought it'd be fun to look back in the past. Because, as it turns out, the English word happy in its original context, meant lucky or favored by fortune. So it didn't necessarily mean that you were filled with joy and contentment and you had great life satisfaction. It meant that you had fortune smiling on you and good things were happening and you were less likely to die.
4: (laughs) Right, right. Because for a lot of history, it wasn't really about Finding happiness. It was about getting a buy.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You might be that your crop has come in uh, uh, more plentiful than you had expected. And so it was a happy accident. It was lucky fortune that smiled on you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, according to at least one source I've looked at, almost every European language, the word for happy traces its roots back to the word for lucky in that particular culture, except Hmm. with one exception. Yeah. The Welsh. Huh. Their word for happy traces back to their word for wise.
4: That's that's very sweet. It's of kind the of Welsh. cool, isn't it? Yeah.
3: I thought it was so neat. Uh, so, uh, if you if you are Welsh and you think it's wise to be happy, I agree. Good on you. Yeah, I I, I however, of course, being English, think it's just lucky to be happy. Uh, but no, it, one of the things that has changed over time. Is that we have, as a species, gotten better and better at uh, achieving our basic needs, particularly in the developed world when we saw the various revolutions, the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution. These things allowed us to get those, those necessities Uh, more easily. And as we were able to get better access to them, we could spend more time thinking, there's gotta be more to life than this, right? There's gotta be something that will make me content and joyful and feel fulfilled Mm -hmm. with my life. Now, now that I no longer have to spend nearly every waking hour making sure I don't die, what can I do with all this time? Mm -hmm. And that's where we kind of get our modern concept of happiness, this idea of being content and joyful and fulfilled. And uh, so we wanted to kind of concentrate on what it is that's going on when we have this, this
4: feeling. Uh, right, because it's more than just an emotion. It's, there, there's a biology to this.
3: Yeah. Uh, we, we aren't like a hollow shell with various emotions that once, sometimes one of them rises to the top and that's our dominant emotion. We're not, we're not that. We're not a collection no. of humors.
4: No, we are not.
3: Uh, although that was certainly an idea that held sway for a very long time. Very long time. We are very complicated electrochemical machines and.
4: Meaty, meaty machines. Yeah.
3: And and part of that means that uh we, we there's a lot of complex chemical processes that are going on uh for any given state of being not just happiness but anything right if you're stressed or if you're afraid or if you are feeling hungry i mean all of these different things have different um uh biological processes that are associated with them and we don't understand all of them for any given <laughs> state of being we we're we're in the learning phase
4: uh yes especially where i mean we've said this on the show a million times at mm-hmm. this juncture um anything having to do with the brain is very complicated yep and we are really only beginning to figure out how it does.
3: Yeah. So if you're hoping that we're going to tell you where the happy switch is, uh, we don't have that information. No. We can talk a lot about some of the areas of the brain that are important to yes. that feeling. Yes.
4: There are many happy switches. Yeah. With and a question mark at the end.
3: In fact, there are a lot of scientists who don't really like to talk about happiness as a concept because it's it's so broad it's also vague Mm -hmm. it encompasses so much that two people can talk about happiness and have very different ideas about what they're saying and they're trying to have a common conversation right so for example there's a psychologist named martin seligman who authored authentic happiness Mm -hmm. he wrote this book and he says I don't really like the word happiness. <laughs> I wrote this book called Authentic <laughs> Happiness. Don't really care for that that I I like to think in terms of things like well-being or love or growth or meaning or flourishing, satisfaction. These are concepts that are easier to define. And oh right, right. You could say they play a part in the overall concept Achievement of happiness. Of, yeah. Yes. It's the happiness umbrella which I like to think has smiley faces on it, but doesn't necessarily have to. But, I like to think it's lined with cupcakes. Oh, a cupcake lined umbrella. I didn't have enough for lunch today. Oh. So, um yeah, it's 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 difficult to even deal with this concept on a scientific basis because again, if you have a a large term that is not not precisely defined, it's hard to get really empirical with it.
4: Oh, sure. And anything emotional is necessarily going to be a little bit difficult to empirically define. But yeah. right, by breaking it down into these kind of subcategories of happiness, uh, you can really start isolating chemicals and brain bits that have yeah. more to do with them.
3: Yeah, so we're going to look at some... Uh some of the neurotransmitters and hormones, as well as some of the regions of the brain that are associated with happiness. So let's start off with some of these neurotransmitters and hormones that we're talking about, because these are the chemicals that we associate with various responses that are part of feeling happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're we're launching off with dopamine and norepinephrine. Uh, now, these are hormones that do lots of things, actually. In fact, all the ones we're going to be talking about have mul- they, they pull multi job duty. Right. As
4: at most everything does, the body is not filled with unitaskers.
3: Exactly. So a lot of these hormones are not even just uh, regulating stuff in the brain. They may have important roles throughout the entire body. And one of those happens to be something that goes on inside our noggins, but not necessarily the only thing. So uh, dopamine and norepinephrine are uh, important in the reward center of the brain. So rewards are reinforcers, which indicate that the thing you just did Was a good thing, and you should do more of that. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, like if you were to, uh, do a a physical task that ends up achieving the goal that you were aiming at, let's say that you were, uh, throwing a spear at a a woolly mammoth, and you hit it just the right spot, and the woolly mammoth dies, the reward center in your brain is gonna go, That was awesome, dude. You (laughs) rule. You know, we're going to eat for days on this. Make sure you do that again if the situation ever pops up. Again. Yeah,
4: Yeah, it's like a chemical high five.
3: Yeah. And so it's something that is certainly associated with happiness, particularly as far as it goes as being fulfilled or satisfaction. This idea that our own brain rewards us. It's it's intrinsic. It's not dependent upon any kind of external gift. Um, it can be associated with an external gift. If you get that promotion that you've been hoping for, you might have that reward yeah. feeling. But it may also just, just by doing something nice for someone, you may have that reward feeling as mm-hmm. you see that the actions you have taken have benefited someone else
4: yeah or uh getting an answer correct on a test or yeah. any number of stimuli
3: so uh very important
4: yes uh then we've got endorphins oh, Those, i love these things yeah well, uh, we all do uh they're hormones that act as painkillers when we're injured and can also induce a kind of sense of euphoria
3: yeah so if you if you're a runner and you've you heard of the runner's high yeah the runner's yeah. high that's endorphins that's uh that's a big part of it uh where you know you you just kind of get this this happy sensation, this, this pleasant, pleasant sensation. Even though just moments ago, your body was saying, for for goodness sakes, just stop.
4: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's because you've you've pushed yourself to a point where your body is like, no, we need some painkillers. Yeah,
3: here. we have got to we got to jump to action because otherwise uh, this person's own spleen is going to rush up to their neck and strangle them. So uh, <laughs> I, I might be getting a little loose with the medical technology and terminology here. But, you know, this is my own personal understanding. Uh, I, I don't run unless something's chasing me.
4: Right. That's, yeah, that's, that's kinda, I, I feel about the same way about so, it personally
3: then we have serotonin which is a neurotransmitter that is biochemically derived from tryptophan uh you may have heard that eating turkey makes you sleepy that's not really true.
4: Technically true. Yeah. I, well, I mean, you'd have to have a lot of yes. turkey, like yeah. a crazy overdose level of turkey. I'm pretty sure you would make yourself sick with turkey before you would actually get sleepy. Yeah,
3: you would probably end up being at least 30% turkey by that time, right? <laughs> now, but tryptophan <laughs> is, in fact, where we derive uh, uh, serotonin. Mm-hmm. And Again, we don't fully understand all of serotonin's uh, functions within the body, but we do believe it contributes to feelings of happiness and well-being, and it helps regulate our sleep cycles. So it also plays a very important role in regulating our gastrointestinal tract, uh, which again, ex- shows how these hormones do lots of different stuff in our bodies. And serotonin also plays a role in uh, our appetites. So when mm-hmm. we feel hungry. Uh, so like I said, it does a lot of stuff. But again, we're not we're just getting started. We still have more to go through. There's melatonin. So Mm -hmm. we got serotonin, then melatonin. These are two different things. Melatonin, though, also helps regulate our sleep wake cycle and establishes the daily cycle of various systems, our circadian rhythm, if you will. Mm -hmm. So it's largely in charge of uh, making sure that our, our various rhythms throughout the day coincide with our when we're awake and when we're asleep this is the stuff that uh you know you you kind of need to be in a dark place to really start uh, generating the melatonin uh you don't want to have lots of light around you all the time. It can really mess with your sleep-wake cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people who have insomnia can have issues with that as well. So anyway, very important. Uh, obviously, if you don't get enough sleep, that's going to affect your satisfaction, your happiness, as well as your health in general.
4: Uh, generally, yes. Uh, and all of these systems are very much tied into each other. Mm-hmm. Um There's also cortisol. And this is a stress hormone, actually. It makes you feel Unhappy, relatively. It, it's really, it's a hormone that's released in response to stressors by the adrenal gland, and it's important because it increases the amount of sugar in your blood and makes more available to your brain uh, plus makes more like tissue repair stuff available to your cells so basically it primes your body to get stuff done um and along with adrenaline it makes you ready for fight or flight but it can also decrease the functions of your other systems uh and basically says to your brain like be afraid be very afraid <laughs> um I, these these chemicals are your body's equivalent of like red alert divert full power to the engines right yeah um and and, you know, so that's really good in some circumstances, but overall, that's not a great feeling.
3: Yeah, you don't want to have that be your, your baseline, right? No, 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 <laughs> that, no,
4: not, not at all.
3: UVs, the amount of stress, and we've talked in the past about how stress can have a, a actual f- effect on your health. Mm-hmm. It's not just, you know, you're feeling tense and you're, and you're not feeling great. I mean, it can really have a, a really, uh, uh, negative impact. On Absolutely. Your health overall. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And so not just the happy inducing chemicals, but also the sad or stress inducing chemicals can right. have a big impact on how happy your overall being is. Right.
3: And there are there are those who argue, obviously, that the the negative ones do play an important part because it, it alerts you to potential danger, helps you stay uh, out of that kind of danger, helps oh, yeah. you get out of a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then a lot of people also point out that we're we're many of us are now living in a world where those um, realistically dangerous situations are few and far between. Oh, right. And yet our body will still react in a negative way when it perceives danger, even if there's no physical threat Uh, that's facing us oh
4: absolutely Um, you know like like when you get nervous about going on a date um, right which you know historically speaking is slightly less useful than getting nervous about you know a bear chasing you
3: right exactly but you end up having the same sort of physiological response because Mm -hmm. your body doesn't have oh let's initiate the date hormone (laughs) it's it's not like that no it's more like well uh you know this this the thought process is, this is scary, so let's enact the scary stuff. Uh, so anyway, uh, that, the balance here is really important. And again, we don't understand all of the, the, the mechanisms in yeah. which all
4: of these things work. Yeah. Now,
3: let's move on to some, uh, some brain anatomy.
4: Yeah, some of the, the hardware, wetware. Yeah.
3: So we talked about reward system and the hormones like dopamine that play a part in it. There are reward pathways in the brain. They involve the frontal cortex, which has the highest concentration of dopamine-sensitive neurons. Then you have the nucleus accumbus, which plays an important part in our sense of pleasure as well as other emotions. It can also play a part with things like fear and aggression. You can kind of think of that as almost like the reptile brain in a way. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the ventral tegmental area, which is the release site for dopamine.
4: Uh, Yeah, the left prefrontal cortex in particular is more active when you're happy as opposed to the right prefrontal cortex, which is more active when you're unhappy or stressed out.
3: Interesting. That's really cool. I did not realize that. Then you have the neocortex, which is the part of our brain that's responsible for a lot of the, the higher thinking functions like conscious thought. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's
4: the mammalian brain. You'll yes. sometimes hear, uh, hear it referred to in literature.
3: Right, because uh, it is not something that is found in uh, all animals. In fact, uh, the reason why it's called neocortex is because it's a relatively new, new. development, yeah. as in late in the evolutionary uh pathway of animals in general.
4: I mean, you know, it, it's only a few million years ago as opposed to a few uh, yeah. is, is that correct? Is it only yeah, a few million as yeah, opposed to a few billions?
3: Yeah. 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 yeah,
4: you know, it's you know, wibbly new-ish. wobbly, timey wimey. Yeah. yeah.
3: I mean, you know, th- things have a longer shelf life in the evolutionary time scale. <laughs> yes. So, uh one of the important things about happiness is consciousness. It's the ability to be aware that you are happy. It's the ability to be aware of the difference between happiness and unhappiness and there are many who argue that if we did not have that ability this would be largely uh Mut. yeah well we wouldn't be having this conversation we'd well. be incapable of it but <laughs> uh but the the consciousness is in fact a necessary item as far as being able to uh to be happy and i like shakespeare's take on this uh, he was not saying anything new and this was, in fact, something that his character Hamlet said. And you always have to remember, a character saying something does not necessarily mean the author means it. No. But he says, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Uh, which, of course, is to say, there's nothing innately good or bad in anything that's going on. It's our interpretation of it that makes it good or bad. Uh, Thus, the consciousness is the thing that allows us to differentiate happy versus unhappy. This becomes more important in a later part of our discussion in Mm -hmm. this episode. But it just shows that these ideas have been around. And and again, Shakespeare didn't come up with that. He was voicing something that the ancient Greeks had talked about. Oh, yeah. Ages before Shakespeare came along.
4: Mm -hmm. Uh, then there's the hippocampus, yeah. which helps us attach context to memories. Um, right. And uh, furthermore, it gets damaged by the release of large amounts of cortisol. So
3: that's really interesting as well, because that means that in a in a, a heightened situation mm-hmm. where cortisol is, is being released because you are getting ready for fight or flight type of thing, then presumably you might have difficulty recalling that situation well. In the future, mm-hmm. thus
4: uh, or while it's going on, yeah. uh, you might have difficulty contextualizing what is what's really going on. You might yeah. have it, it's part of why you sort of freak out a little bit in those situations.
3: Yeah, it's also uh, it's another good example of why eyewitness testimony is something that we should be careful about, because memories are weird things. A lot of times we end up forming what we think was the actual memory of the event that happened while it was happening. Mm hmm. Afterward. And our then, brains are yeah. not
4: digital cameras, and every no. time we recall a memory, we are changing it.
3: Yeah. So, uh, I think that's a little bit of a tangent, but important, I think. <laughs> it's uh,
4: Jonathan Rant time, yes. Yeah,
3: exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and it gets even more complicated, right? This is just a tiny glimpse of parts of the brain that are involved with our our concept, at least our modern concept yeah, the, of these, happiness. Yeah, these
4: are kind of referred to as the big ones, I think. Yeah. But, uh, but we don't know. Yeah, we don't, we
3: don't even know what we don't know, right? right? That's the, that's the crazy part of it is that we don't know how far away we are from getting a full understanding of the workings of the brain. We know that it's far more complex than what we are capable of explaining right now. And I, when I say we, I mean humans as a whole. Yeah, not not just, not not just the two of us sitting
4: at this podcast table.
3: I mean, that's already been clear from our previous <laughs> episodes, but no, I mean, people as a whole, we don't really know everything, and so since we're just figuring all this out, uh, it's it's impossible for us to say right now that we could come up with a system that could manufacture synthetic happiness on demand. But that is something that we've you know thought about. It's something that's in science fiction. It's something that's oh, sure. in there's there are experiments with uh, uh, stimulating the pleasure centers of the brain. Granted, uh, and we're about to just. To talk about specific ways of doing that with humans. But, you know, we don't have that that ability. And the question is, if we ever come up with it, would it really be meaningful? So in order to get to that question, we should look at some ways that we've kind of explored uh stimulating different parts of the brain that are associated, at least in some part, with happiness um, so far.
4: Right, right. So uh, because this is absolutely a science that is going on right now. Yeah. So. In fact,
3: in fact, there's the first one we're talking about is a science that's been around for a while uh-huh. uh, in various formats, and we've talked about it on this show before. Uh, electrical stimulation of the brain, you know, like we said, the brain is an electrochemical organ. And so the electro part means that if you use some you electricity. You can fuss about with it. Yeah, yeah, don't touch that. You never know what's attached to. But uh uh so we we are seeing some people use electricity to treat depression. This is not a new idea. It is the basis for electroconvulsive therapy, which is actually used for multiple types of therapy, not just for depression. Mm-hmm. Um and there's also deep brain stimulation, which uses electrodes to deliver uh, electricity to areas in the brain believed to be associated with moods specifically for depression. Again, it can also be used for other types of treatments. Um, Now, uh, the big difference between the two is that deep brain stimulation, as you would imagine, is invasive and involves surgery. Right. So you're talking about drilling holes into a person's head, inserting wires into their brain so that the wires uh, terminate at the point near the neurons you want to stimulate, and then directing a charge at that specific area.
4: Uh, Right. But that's obviously a pretty high buy-in for treating something. Yeah.
3: Usually it's for people who are suffering from very serious ailments. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, it might be something like Parkinson's. Uh, It's not just for treating moods. Mm -hmm. But uh, I did read a study where it was used to treat um, someone who had uh, a very serious case of depression mm-hmm. to the point where, uh, of course, this could have been uh, hyperbole, but it was in popular science. And the author mentioned that after they they turned on the electrodes and delivered electricity to the um, to specific neurons in this woman's brain, she smiled. She said that the room got brighter. And that she could actually recognize emotions on faces. And she said it was the first time she had smiled in 20 years. Oh,
4: my goodness. Yeah,
3: it's oh. a pretty powerful story. Whether or not there was any embellishment there, I cannot say. But, sure. you know, again, it's one of those things that says, hey, you know, there is this this power in electricity. Yeah. To have a fundamental effect on our brains.
4: Uh, yeah. And right. We, we have talked a little bit about the other one, electric convulsive therapy, before mm. that episode was Augmenting the Brain Part 2, the tech. Uh, and it published in August of 2014, if you'd like to check it out. But just to summarize real quick, it's currently considered a, a really a safe and effective way to manage cases of severe depression where drugs haven't helped. And it's it's not like in the movies. OK, your, your doc is going to put you under general anesthesia and give you muscle relaxers. So it's not traumatic the way that you've probably seen it portrayed. Right.
3: It's not like. Sucker punch, or <laughs> Return to Oz, <laughs> or no. any of the, where where it's used as the the threatening treatment. Yeah, American
4: Horror Story. Yeah. Nothing like that. No. Um. I mean, you know, the thing is, is that we're not even sure why it works right. like this. The theories range from that it changes blood flow, or or changes the brain's metabolism to changing the the chemical release and uptake of stuff to the stimulation of nerve cells and pathway growth. Mm-hmm. Um but uh but but right it, it's it's definitely a therapy that is good in these extreme cases. It does tend to affect patients' memory, so it's really only a last resort. Right. Yeah, um, we
3: are talking about really severe cases here, but it shows that there may be a way for us to Find uh, a means of electrically stimulating the brain in a safe manner mm-hmm. that can dramatically change someone's life yeah. uh, who might be suffering from depression. Now, this is not the same as saying we're going to end up with chips in our heads that will make us perpetually happy.
4: I don't know. I'd kind of take that. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, I mean, there's there's always the story about the the. Experiment where uh, scientists hooked up electrodes to the pleasure center of monkeys' brains and gave them access to a button, and they just kept on pressing they the button pushed over it and over. until they
4: basically died. Yeah, yeah. Um,
3: uh, but we'll we'll get into a little bit more of the science fictiony kind of uh, uh, philosophy behind the idea of synthetic happiness. Uh-huh. But there is another way of getting synthetic happiness.
4: Uh, right? Yeah, we just talked about the electro portion of electrochemical. So let's talk about the chemical.
3: Yeah, we're talking drugs. Yep. So. Drugs doesn't, we, we don't just mean illicit drugs, although clearly those leap to mind when you're talking about mind altering or mood altering substances. Uh, sure. Uh, so some of them, they alter moods by stimulating dopamine production, like cocaine. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I looked at a chart that showed dopamine production from something like having, uh, seeing an old relative uh for the first time in ages, someone you really love. And then comparing that to the amount of dopamine someone on cocaine would experience and it was a dramatic
4: difference. I would imagine um, so. Otherwise we would just look at pictures of our loved ones whenever yeah, we wanted to get high.
3: Right. Yeah, that would be like uh that that's what all the SNL writers were doing back in the seventies, is uh-huh. just flipping through photo books. <laughs> But uh also there are drugs that introduce the sense of euphoria kind of uh, like endorphins.
4: Uh, right right opiates like morphine do this by connecting to the same receptors that accept your body's natural endorphins. Mm-hmm. So they they just work along the same pathways chemically speaking.
3: These these effects are real. I mean mm-hmm. they really will have these mood altering uh, uh effects on people, but they also are temporary, meaning that when the drug wears off then you're back to where you were. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can be ad- addictive. And I didn't mention this in the in the note, but I mean, it's something that we all know. Not only can they be addictive, but you can build up resistance to them and thus you end up having to take more and,
4: and- probably getting more of those negative side effects. Right. And, yeah. and possibly
3: reaching levels of toxicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why it's uh, not the best way of trying to achieve happiness.
4: Uh Correct. It it could be
3: very important for treating very serious illnesses.
4: Oh, certainly. Certainly. Um, Also note that really any substances you take into your body, including foods, contain chemicals that can impact your brain. Um, Some foods help your body produce more of these happy chemicals like spinach, turkey we mentioned earlier, or bananas, um, because stuff like folate and tryptophan go into creating serotonin. Yep. Um, also caffeine, nicotine and alcohol, which are a relatively common use drugs, all do have effects on A, the central nervous system and B, can stimulate the release of stuff like serotonin and dopamine.
3: Right. And then uh, we have psychiatric drugs, right?
4: Uh Right. These are the regulated chemicals that usually require a prescription from a certified health professional of one kind or another. And they're used to treat diagnosed conditions like depression and anxiety. Uh, they're going to be interacting with your brain and its chemicals, sometimes frequently in ways that we haven't really figured out yet mm-hmm. to basically just improve your mood. Yeah, Um Lots of them, like tricyclics and uh, SSRIs, that's selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, will help serotonin find the postsynaptic receptors where they'll help you feel happy, um, at least partially by preventing the serotonin from being absorbed by other cells.
3: Gotcha. So uh, again, these are really useful tools for uh, patients who are suffering from depression, not meant to be something to, like a happy pill.
4: It's, <laughs> I, I think no, no, a, it's, it's still not an on switch. I mean, right. you know, they, although they do, uh, recent research has indicated that even a single dose of some of these drugs can start affecting the way that your brain works, mm-hmm. but usually it takes a couple of weeks to build them up in your system. They're usually recommended along with a course of therapy of one kind or another, mm-hmm. um, more emotional behavioral therapy, and, and they're, they're absolutely not a cure-all. For unhappiness,
3: right? Yeah, uh, it always makes me think of um the kids in the hall. They had a, a feature length film called Brain Candy, huh, uh-huh. where th- the main part of the story is the development of an antidepressant called Glimanex, which just <laughs> induces happiness. Uh, eventually uh, inducing catatonia so not exactly a a perfect <laughs> example um but yeah it actually does play into the same warning that we're giving is that that this is something that is important but isn't the the happy pill uh right. but then then there's other stuff that can actually make a real improvement to your mood that doesn't involve shocking your brain or taking drugs
4: oh sure just exercise i mean okay of course it's good for you we all learned that at the apple six apple iphone six release right yeah Um, now now
3: that i know i can strap an apple product to my wrist (laughs) and move around i'll be happy
4: uh uh-huh um no, no, but exercise does genuinely help make you happier in a few different ways. Um, first of all, it increases your body's production of antibodies and T-cells, which help fight off bodily invaders like bacteria or viruses that can make you sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, not being sick is pretty cool.
3: Yeah, being sick is a, a real detriment to happiness.
4: Yes, Um it lowers the levels of cortisol in your bloodstream, that stress hormone that we've mentioned a couple times before mm-hmm. here. Um, and also it stimulates the production of endorphins, as we talked about at the top of the show.
3: Right. So uh, out of the three of these, the exercise is the one that I can heartily recommend because it, it certainly has... A, a suite of benefits, oh, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and so it's one of those things that can contribute to your overall happiness uh, without having the detriment of uh, requiring surgery. I mean, or or affecting or, your memory or, or
4: eating a lot of spinach.
3: Right? Yeah. I mean, I love spinach, but yeah, yeah, you know no,
4: okay. a a plus for yeah, spinach.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm no Popeye. But uh, at any rate, so would these synthetic ways, not, not the exercise one, but the drugs and, and electricity where we're artificially introducing happiness, uh, would they work? And this kind of ends up getting to the question of what is happiness, right? So uh, in the video I mentioned we could talk about a world where let's say you have a very tough existence, uh, you know, day to day life is hard and maybe there's very few things that are rewarding to you in your life, but you have access to the happy switch and you can turn on the switch and you feel genuine joy and euphoria, but your life doesn't change at all. So you still have this tough existence. Does is that true happiness? And that's a question that I think is subjective. It depends upon someone's view of what happiness really is. Uh,
4: yeah, yeah. We're, we're ranging into the slightly less scientific More concepts philosophical, of philosophical philosophy and morality and yeah. all of that.
3: So for me, this is my own personal point of view. I would want to try and have a life where I am putting all the things I can in order so that I can pursue a happy lifestyle. As opposed to having a switch that just makes me feel happy, even if objectively, if I were able to remove myself from that situation, I would think, wow, that's one miserable guy down there. <laughs> but that's mm-hmm. me personally, because it goes beyond the chemical for me. I tend to be very pragmatic in most cases. <laughs> but in this one case, I think, no, I kind of want the what would feel like genuine happiness to me, because to me, this does not feel like it would be genuine Um but again, it's all depends on your definition.
4: Oh, well, yeah, and and you know, there there are everyone I think on the planet is going to have a slightly different answer to that question. Yeah. Um, but there are certainly many people who are pursuing that kind of thought, um, especially through the field of positive psychology.
3: Yeah, this is a an interesting approach to psychology. It is an attempt to have an empirical study of happiness, but not The biological side that we've already talked about, rather the elements of life that would make someone feel happy by kicking into gear those biological processes. So the biological processes are important, but really what the positive psychology is looking at is what are the things in life that give us these feelings? Um, you know, what sort of activities do we need to do? What sort of experiences do we need to have? What kind of life can we pursue to have a happier existence?
4: Sure. So, well, I mean, you know, for, for example, I'm sure that, that exercise plays a, p- a part in positive psychology. Be- yep. I mean, even though it is a chemical process in your body, but it's, it's ranging into that. Well, it, help your help. Help your brain help itself. Exactly. Kind of area.
3: Yeah. It's, it's one of the things identified as this makes you feel better. Mm-hmm. Right. So that falls right into the sort of stuff they you know, the, the studies look at people uh who have different lifestyles and kind of judge uh, happiness. Now, obviously, taking an empirical approach to any kind of social science is difficult, right? It's challenging. It's not impossible, but it is really challenging because it largely relies upon things like surveys. Which require people to give honest answers.
4: And, and generally cooperate, yeah.
3: Yeah. And it's, it's a little, it's a little trickier than saying, uh, you know, what is the force of gravity on this planet? Well, we dropped this thing, it fell at this rate, the acceleration was such, thus it is this. Like that's something you can empirically describe through an observation. Uh, what makes people happy gets a little more fuzzy. And it is by, by and large subjective. Now there are large broad categories. That some researchers in positive psychology have identified as being important for the pursuit of happiness. And I should say that uh, I'm going to talk about three different types of uh, lifestyles or life pursuits. That some people in positive psychology have uh, identified.
4: Yes, of, of course, as in any scientific field, especially the softer scientific fields, mm. there is disagreement on on exactly what these should be and what right. they mean. But, uh, but, but what are these basic three things?
3: Okay, you've got the pleasant life. uh uh-huh. Now this is the idea that you are spending your time seeking experiences and relationships to trigger your sense of satisfaction. So this would be the people who uh you know they go on an adventure holiday so they can go to some place they've never been before and experience the The local uh, wildlife or the local cultures to really immerse themselves in something new and they get satisfaction from that or they like to go out and make friends. They they take time to get to know people and they gain satisfaction from forming these sort of relationships. It also uh, falls into the same category as people who buy stuff you know the retail therapy <laughs> uh-huh. where they they see something really cool and they buy it and there's that reward center again you, the fact that you get something cool that you think is really neat mm-hmm. you you do feel a sense of pleasure from this uh this tends to be the one that most people or most of the the researchers i've read have said is the the most fleeting the idea that once you do achieve whatever it is you're doing whether it's buying a brand new toy mm-hmm. or going on that great vacation that or it,
4: getting that achievement unlocked.
3: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The gradually it it wears off and you have to do it again in order to you know, you can't just do one amazing thing and then you're happy all the rest of your life. <laughs> uh, you have to continuously right, do this right. sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes your life becomes Forrest Gump, where you're just constantly, of course, with him, <laughs> it just happened by luck, which goes back to that earlier de- definition of of happy. But yeah. you know, you would be pursuing
4: this, uh, right? Or you're you're level grinding basically. Yeah, yeah.
3: And and also beyond that, there are people who have said, well, and it's it's not even as simple as this because you would need to seek out experiences that, uh, that reflect who you are as a person. So, Lauren, for example, let's say that you despise travel. Mm-hmm. And you, let's just say that you, you hate the idea of travel. Okay. Then pushing yourself to go and tr- travel and have these experiences might not result in you being happy, even if the experience is legitimately amazing, your feelings about travel might be so negative. Uh, that right.
4: I, I might be so stressed out about flying or about, um you know, getting places on time or about interacting with a new environment right. that I'm unfamiliar with.
3: Or, or leaving behind people that you mm-hmm. really like. And, you know, that's that's where you Missing really get pleasure. Yeah, home. exactly. Right, sure. So that sort of thing could mean that you don't come away with this happy feeling. Uh, however, if you indulge in things that you really do enjoy, let's say that you you just love reading a new book as mm-hmm. often as possible, then something as simple as going out and finding a book you haven't read before could bring you true joy. Mm-hmm. So we petting
4: kittens, just going on a quest to pet every all, yeah, kitten. pet,
3: all the kittens. That could be that could be it. And that's the thing is that it all depends upon you picking the right sort of experiences. Mm-hmm. It's not just to have experiences. Right. It's to have the right kind based upon who For you are. You. Then you have The Good Life. Now, The Good Life is a great song by Weezer, but it's also <laughs> when you are feeling really engaged in the activities that you're doing. No, I'm serious. It's a great song. Shaken Booty. It's a great song. Anyway, so Good Life is all about um uh, being really engaged with the things you do, whether that's hobbies you do or pr- if it's your job, it's fantastic because it means you get real satisfaction and you feel uh, a sense of well-being about the work you do. So for those of us who are fortunate to have jobs that give us a lot of this, I mean, I'm not saying that my job is free of stress, y'all, because huh, no, uh, it comes with a whole big old pile of it. But it I, does.
4: No, but our amazing dream jobs are are amazing. Amazing.
3: And the fact that we're able to do it is something that gives me a real sense of satisfaction. Uh, this tends to be viewed as being more sustainable than the pleasant life, because uh, if you land something or you find something that gives you pleasure whenever you engage in it. Whether it's a hobby or a job or whatever, then that tends to be something, unless it's something that is reliant upon a uh, depleted resource, it's something that you can repeatedly do.
4: continue do uh, doing. Right. Um, you know, maybe being part of a improv group or yeah. gardening or other activities like that, that that have a larger arc of work to pay off.
3: Yeah. And that's one of those things that, uh, uh, you know, it's it's easy to say uh, is attainable. But I realized that, I mean, I worked for seven years in a job that did not give me that kind of reward. So it's it's something that, again, tends to, you know, you might go back to that lucky definition of happy.
4: Uh, Sure. But it's, it's also highly individual and and a thing that you can work towards.
3: Yes. Yes. So certainly don't take any discouragement from what I'm saying. I would love to hear that All of our listeners have found amazing either hobbies or jobs or both Mm -hmm. uh, that really give them that kind of satisfaction. The third life is the meaningful life. And all of these names sound pretty pretentious, I will admit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Meaningful Life is all about participating in and contributing to something larger than yourself. So that might be your community or it might be a cause that you really believe in. Maybe you get involved in like a nonprofit organization mm-hmm. that you really feel is is doing good work mm-hmm. and you gain satisfaction and well-being from that.
4: Uh, sure. Maybe raising children or adopting those kittens that you like petting so well.
3: Yeah. Although there are some studies that suggest that the whole raising of children thing contributes more to unhappiness than happiness. I'm serious. <laughs> I, I
4: think that the two single well, uh, the, the two childless people sitting yeah. in front of these microphones should maybe not comment too. <laughs> I'm just
3: saying what the studies say. I okay. don't make any I don't make any okay. uh, guesses on my own. Um, they do say that marriage married people tend to be happier than single people, but people without kids tend to be less unhappy than people with kids. And I think a large part of that is just that when you're a parent, you have a lot of responsibilities and things sure. to that, that weigh on you. It doesn't mean that children can't be a joy. Obviously they can be, but there are a lot of, I take
4: a lot of joy from other people's children. I do
3: too, especially when they take their children away. I take a lot of joy at that point. <laughs> no,
4: um, no, no, you hang out, you have a great time and then you give them back.
3: Right. Yeah. You load them up on sugar and give them some loud toys and then you hand them back to mom and dad. Uh, yeah, I hope my sister's not listening to this podcast. <laughs> uh, she, she knows what my plans are. It's okay. So, at any rate, um, there these are three broad categories, and again, not all positive psychology researchers and scientists really fall into uh, the saying that these are like the the three big ones. In fact, some of them break it down into more. Some of them dismiss the idea entirely. But I thought it was an interesting approach because it does kind of help define happiness uh, and the the things that give us pleasure into different uh, different categories that we can easily talk about. So again, it's really hard to talk about happiness in an empirical scientific way. Uh, what gives me a meaningful experience may not apply to anyone else. Maybe when I travel to a destination that seems completely mundane to everyone else, for some reason it has an attachment to me. Maybe it reminds me of something from my childhood or there's just something there that I really get attached to. But someone else could go to that same location and feel nothing. There's nothing wrong with either of those scenarios. But it does make it hard to talk about empirically. (laughs) Right. Now, we can't say, like, if you go to this place on the map. You'll be happy, and that's another one of the issues, right? Is that everyone wants to know the answer of what will make me happy, and but
4: unfortunately, the answer lies inside you.
3: Yes, and don't that doesn't mean that you know, you have to go all Temple of Doom <laughs> and do the whole <laughs> kali thing. That's I know it's not that's not,
4: not necessarily recommended. Although you so, know, if you
3: feel like that's your true <laughs> path, I'm not going to tell you. But no, philosophically, we're saying inside of you. But it's also interesting that a lot of the positive psychology findings seem to reinforce some folk wisdom, like money can't buy happiness. This is where things get even more complicated. So money can't buy happiness. What's that about? So, again, getting into the idea of using money to buy things to make you happy, mm-hmm. that sort of stuff it's is a short high. Yeah. And you have to keep on doing it. And yeah, it's a, for most of us, a limited resource uh, and is not a game you can play indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. It is interesting that money can, in fact, help stave off unhappiness, which not a huge surprise, right? If oh, yeah. If you're, if you're,
4: if you can't provide for yourself and your loved ones, then of course that's going to make you less happy.
3: Absolutely, you're going to be under an intense amount of anxiety and stress. Uh, it is very difficult difficult to pursue a happy lifestyle when you cannot provide for yourself or your and or your loved ones. Uh, so. Daniel Kahneman wrote that in the United States, happiness levels off, though, at incomes around $75,000 per year, because huh. at that income range, you can pretty much meet your basic needs that you would.
4: With that, have. you can buy happiness past yeah, you that. Can. Yeah, plateaus. You can at least
3: stave off unhappiness <laughs> okay. uh, or, or stave off the things that would require you to be worried on a day to day basis about your uh-huh. existence. Right. You'd you'd have enough money to provide food, uh, uh, medical treatment if necessary, uh, a house, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, or at least a shelter of some sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then found that if you go beyond the seventy five thousand dollars, it doesn't contribute to more happiness. It's not that you know, the scale continues to go up. So if you add another $100,000 to that and you're making $175,000 a year, you're not suddenly $100,000 happier (laughs) than the $75,000 a year person.
4: Uh, But I'm sure that there's other studies that would argue with that finding, yeah? Yeah,
3: yeah. And I think a lot of it depends upon how you frame the question. And this is, again, going back to that fuzzy, soft science approach. It, It all really is dependent upon your methodology. And if you ask a question one way in one study and another way in another study, you could ask the same people and get questions different enough to jump to opposite conclusions. Oh, sure. So you mm-hmm. could say we surveyed some of the wealthiest people in the world and they are happier than anyone. It's like, well, we surveyed those same happiest people or wealthiest people in the world and they say they're no happier one day to the next. And. Then you get into this.
4: Oh, um, yeah, yeah. And and there there is, by the way, an entire branch of scientific study devoted to figuring out how to ask questions as empirically as possible in all of these wibbly-wobbly kind of fields.
3: Yeah. So there's a study <laughs> that Betsy Stevenson and Justin Wolfers did that suggests that the wealthy are more satisfied with their lives than the rest of us. And when we say the wealthy, they're talking about people who are making like, you know, Millions of dollars okay or at least several hundred thousand dollars uh, then you have Kahneman's approach where he said that it it leveled off after seventy five thousand uh, dollars they said that the discrepancy may come down to the nature of those questions Kahneman was focusing on everyday events like how do you feel from one day to the next are you happier? Uh, are you are you consistently happy? Do you have your ups and downs? Whereas Stevenson and Wolfers were looking at broader questions about life satisfaction. Do you have the ability to pursue the things hmm. you want to do?
4: Uh-huh.
3: Uh, and that ability to pursue things that you want to do is both a blessing and a curse. So researcher Robert Kenny did a study on really wealthy people. He His cutoff was $25 million of assets. Oof, okay. Yeah. So we're talking about people who are, have got some cash to burn. Yep. And he found that they had greater temporal and spatial freedom, meaning that they had the time and ability to pretty much do whatever they wanted do to and
4: do. and go wherever they wanted to yeah, be. They, they
3: yeah. They had the money where they could, if they wanted to travel the world for a full year without ever, you know, eating at the same place or sleeping at the same place twice, they could totally do that. Uh, but – with this freedom came so many options that a lot of people would become paralyzed by all the options. They wouldn't know what to do. They, the world was open to them, and with all of that unending possibility came the intense pressure of, well, if I do this one thing, then I'm not doing all missing, these other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. it's the same sort of argument you get when you have uh, a, 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 like, let's say that you are given a choice between three options or a choice between ten options. It may be that the people who are given the choice between three options are happier with their decision even though they had less uh, variability Mm -hmm. because they're only missing out on two other things and they can feel reasonably certain that the thing they picked is going to be the best for them. The more options you have, the more you start, that doubt starts to creep in. Mm-hmm. Like, well, what if I had picked this other thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a discussion with how stuff works editor Scott Benjamin this morning, uh-huh. where we used the specific example of menus and that the more menu items you have, the more you start to doubt whatever it was you chose. Even if what you ate was delicious to you, you're still going to be doubting it. Yeah. Uh, we ended up settling on the cheesecake factory as being the chief
4: I was about to say I sometimes the Cheesecake Factory feels like a circle of hell to me because yeah. I just look at the menu and I'm like, I I can't I can't even handle this.
3: I brought it up and Scott immediately said that's what I was going to say, too, because <laughs> I we're, I think we're all in agreement. And Scott said that he had read or he had talked to a server and was told that if you look at all the items on the menu. And I think that includes everything. Mm -hmm. There are 275 choices.
4: I don't even understand that number.
3: (laughs) Right, which means that anything you pick, like even when you're thinking about drink, appetizer, meal, and dessert, there's still a huge number of things you weren't able to try. Yeah. Well— Apparently the wealthy suffer this terrible hell that you speak of on a day-to-day basis because they have the freedom to do whatever they want and that paralyzes them into not doing anything or to choose something and doubt their choice. Uh, So it's a different type of stress that they go under, very different from what those of us who cannot afford this kind of lifestyle – But but that stress is still real and it still impacts happiness. Oh, sure. Of course. So it may be that there is a quote unquote happy medium Mm -hmm. where we can have this freedom, enough freedom to be able to do something interesting without having all the options in the world open to us.
4: Oh, sure. And and also without potentially burning yourself out on buying stuff. Yeah. I mean, because there's only so much stuff you can buy first right. of all. Yeah. Um, even if
3: you're wealthy, like eventually, unless you're going to become a hoarder, you're not going to be able to continuously right. buy something whenever mm-hmm. you're feeling unhappy. Uh, anyone who has heard of the whole retail therapy thing knows this. You know, you get this. It's, it's something that's easy to indulge in. Mm-hmm. So it's something that a lot of people turn to. Uh, I, oh, yeah. I am guilty of this. Oh yeah. Definitely I'm, me I, too. I've gone on like, oh, let's just see what games are available on Amazon. <laughs> I have, I have, uh, or Steam. Gosh, Steam is, <laughs> oh boy, I've bought games that I've yet to play on Steam uh, on multiple occasions because I thought, oh, this will be fun. And then really what the fun part was, was the acquiring of the game. Mm-hmm. I haven't even played the game. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it wears off and you can't keep doing it mm-hmm. indefinitely.
4: Also, I suspect that some of the discrepancy between these studies might have something to do with that, that, concept of happiness being a different quality for everyone of of different things, making different people happy and it being basically impossible to compare one person's idea of happy to another person's. Yeah. How how can you empirically measure how happy a trip makes you versus a really cool new matte lip gloss makes me? I mean, you know,
3: don't discount the, the lip gloss for me.
4: Here. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, how, how happy that lip gloss makes you thank versus you. me. Yeah. I there do you have go. a
3: makeup kit at my desk. <laughs> um,
4: me too. So, so say we all. Yeah, that's sweet. You know, Working with a video a studio of it. It means, and 4K cameras. That yeah,
3: that's right. You get those 4K cameras. Those you're going to, you're going to cake that stuff on. Let <sighs> me tell you. Yeah. I work with that on a regular basis, but no, you, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, without precisely defining what element of happiness you're looking at that alone makes the the question too complicated right because it may be what is your overall satisfaction with your life for a wealthy person that might be very high mm-hmm. But there may be other elements that they associate with happiness that they do not possess. And so, it again, it's another reason why a lot of people don't like the term happiness to describe this because it's it's so broad and encompassing that you could do really well in one area and really be really deficient in another. And thus you come away with it saying, I am not happy, but I am this mm-hmm. other thing. Yeah. Like I might be very healthy. That could sure. be part of it. So very complicated issue. Uh, now, the hope is that positive psychology will help us identify more and more of these factors and come to an understanding. And it may even be this one-to-one understanding where mm-hmm. each person comes to his or her own conclusions about what is important for them as a person to have a satisfying, fulfilling, uh, and ultimately happy life. And I hope that that is the case. It is. Uh, I actually enrolled in a MOOC. On oh yeah. positive psychology. Okay. So I am uh I'm still following it. It had just started, so I didn't have a whole lot of opportunity to read up on it very much yet. Mm-hmm. But it is really interesting. The people who teach it are uh they are very qualified psychologists. Um so it's not coming across as like welcome to the commune, here's your <laughs> here's your patch for vegetables <laughs> sort of thing. Uh-huh. But it is really interesting to see how that that plays out. And uh uh I my hope is that in the future we're going to be able to provide for the basic necessities for as many people as possible, yeah, and give us the opportunity to pursue the things that make us happy mm-hmm. so it's it's one of those things that I think is is pretty far off, and it is an idealistic, optimistic view of the future. It's kind of that Star Trek version, oh, right, sure yeah. the
4: federation kind of concept um but also i think it'll get easier to mitigate people's unhappiness once we work out that that science angle of figuring out how the brain is interacting with the body and all of the chemicals and all the electricity right and see what we can do to at the very least in 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 the cases of of diagnosable conditions really help people out in the in the best Gentlest, uh, least side effecty ways possible.
3: Right. Yeah. This idea of of when we have distilled the things that really cause distress in people who who should not be feeling, be feeling distress. Right. Exactly. The people who are are. Are, or feeling
4: more acute distress than they otherwise might.
3: Right. And being able to alleviate that. But I absolutely do look forward to that future as well. That I think anything where we're talking about helping people, that always is the, the future that I think
4: right. um,
3: that is is that's the one I want to see. Yeah. And uh, it is what keeps me being an optimist, even though, you know, again, I say being an optimist doesn't mean that you put blinders on. Being an optimist to me means that you look out for the challenges, you acknowledge that they exist, and then you figure out how to meet them and get beyond them. So uh, I, I encourage everyone out there to really... Critically think about the things that make you happy, the things that give you satisfaction, the things that uh, provide for you joy, mm-hmm. and to really, you know, embrace that.
4: Yeah, yeah, and you know, if if you have any any really great ones or, or any very particular ones that that you think are are pretty unique to you, then we want to hear about them.
3: Yeah, maybe maybe you you say nothing in the world makes me happier than racing my pet box turtle.
4: I want to hear it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because or of... or if you have any life hacks about that kind of thing. You yeah. Know? I yeah. mean, maybe not relating to box turtles. Right,
3: right. Just happiness in general. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that clarification <laughs> is appreciated. Although if you have any life hacks of box turtle racing, I'll yeah. hear that too. Oh, definitely. Uh, so in order to get in touch with us, since you're coming up with all these great ideas, folks, mm-hmm. you should let us know what you think on Twitter, Facebook google plus we have the handle fw thinking over at twitter and google plus just search fw thinking over at facebook our page will pop right up join the conversation tell us what makes you happy and we will be happy to read every single email and if you have any suggestions for future episodes that would also make us happy this means we don't have to come up with them let us know your thoughts and we will talk to you again really soon
2: For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places.
1: This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With Simelbo Grease,
2: you sent off today.